0: grace and love pouring out from above like a mighty river that's what it is pouring out upon us the word also describes that as a mighty wind which we'll talk about in a minute a mighty river God's grace is a wind that overcomes us let's begin by reading our primary text in 1st John chapter 3 pick up where we left off last week uh, start in verse 4 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Titled today, Rebellion or Righteousness? Which are you? Beginning in verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin And because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, that's a difficult verse. That's a difficult passage, isn't it? But we'll gather some understanding today. If you remember in our previous passage, we came to learn that within Christendom there are varied levels of obedience to God, right? Some choose to obey quite closely to what God's will is, and they have great confidence in His return, remember? And then there are others who do not obey. They will shrink away. They'll be ashamed when Christ returns due to their lack of obedience, their lack of devoted service. So last week we primarily discussed those two categories of Christian the obedient Christian, and the disobedient Christian. Well, today, however, our passage revisits a principle we we briefly engaged last week, and that is that some, some persons just simply can't obey God. That's because they don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're not born unto Him. They are not God's children at all. In fact, they're dead in their sins. And their Father's domain is not heaven, as our Father's domain is, but from Jesus' words in John 8, 44, if you remember from last week, we found out that their father is the devil. So there are people who categorically behave unrighteous. But we'll also discover today that there are people who cannot categorically behave unrighteous. They categorically behave Righteous. That would describe redeemed Christians who belong to God, whose hearts have been renewed, they've been regenerated, they're alive to God by the rebirth given by the Holy Spirit, right? We learned that last week. So they're not only born physically, as all mankind is, everyone is born physically, Christians are also born again a second time spiritually unto Christ. And they're, they're born again to be alive to God. We see this described in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Jesus told a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Jesus said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit? What Jesus explained to Nicodemus is that, that the Holy Spirit, in one manner, represents or resembles the wind, right? And in fact, the, the basic Hebrew term spirit actually means breath or wind. I don't know if, if you've ever tried to take a rope and to form a lasso as you were a kid, or even now today, and you throw that rope out. And what happens if you miss? It hits the ground, right? You can't rope the wind. It's out of your control. It's entirely something that that you cannot harness naturally. It blows where it wishes. Though you sense its presence, you can't see it. You can't control it. To do so would be futile. But even though we can't see the wind, what can we do? We can hear it. You know it's there, right? We know it exists, and, and we know the wind possesses immense power. How? Because you know, everywhere the wind blows, in its path where it blew, there's evidence that is left behind, right? It may just be some dust that is churned up that falls on your car right after you wash it. If it's an unfortunate wind, it might blow your hair over sideways if it isn't glued down well enough. Or... If there's an immense, powerful hurricane, buildings might be flattened, right? A powerful wind can do mighty things. And the evidence, then, is left behind that that wind is very, very real. Any insurance appraiser who's arrived at the site of a hurricane afterwards could definitely tell you that the wind exists by looking at the evidence that is left behind. He finds lives that are permanently altered, right? Essentially, Jesus says, so it is with the work of God's mighty Spirit. Of course, he reminded Nicodemus of the obvious, that everyone on the planet born once of flesh. That's what That which is born of flesh is flesh. But only certain people are born of the Spirit. That which is of the Spirit is Spirit. You must be born again. So there are two categories. Some are born once. Others are born twice. And though the Holy Spirit blows wherever he wishes, and you can't control him, and though you can't visibly see the Holy Spirit, nonetheless, what can you see? He leaves behind completely transformed lives, right? Contrary to many beliefs, the biblical evidence of a born-again Christian, it's not a baptismal certificate, nothing wrong with that, It's not completing a confirmation class. It's not even responding to an emotional plea of some type. A lot of Christians have done these things. Not necessarily bad things. But a lot of non-Christians have also done these very same things. No, that's not the evidence, because you can't see people's hearts. The only verifiable evidence of the true Christian which we can see is a transformed life. That's what John is saying here. You will know them by their fruits, right? So how can uh, an alcoholic who's been drinking for decades set down the bottle? How can a woman at a well who's had five different husbands suddenly turn her life around and run into town and tell everybody she knows about this, this person that she's met, this Messiah that she's met? And how can a vulgar vile slave ship captain who for years just relished in profanity and gambling, drinking, suddenly then decide to become an Anglican priest, combat the horrors of the slave trade, and ultimately write one of the greatest hymns in history. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, blind, but now I see. How? The only way that that happens is their old, wretched, sinful lives have collided with the mighty Spirit of God. They've lost. Their lives are flattened. The washing and renewing of the, and regenerating of the Holy Spirit blew into their lives, and it changed them. They gave their lives to Christ. They had no choice but to repent and love the God who loved them enough to die for them, right? So he who is in Christ is a new creation, a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold what? All things have become new. Yeah. Well, if you remember last week as we as we finished up, we left with a warning. Uh, if you're not uh, very concerned about pleasing in your, your Father who's in heaven, the warning was, it's possibly that you've never had that second birth, that spiritual rebirth. And and that problem arises in way too many people who've identified themselves as Christians by pointing to something that they've done in the past. I finished this class. I took this oath. I even said a special prayer. And they identify themselves being a Christian by something they have done rather than by what God has done. But spiritual rebirth is not something that, that we've controlled, something we've done. It's a gift that God has given you, right? It's something God has done. That's why, as Pastor Weiler does the baptisms next week, he'll be getting wet. I'm very excited about that this time. He, I'm, I'm excited for the ceremony coming up. And we're going to celebrate this, right? But no one gets saved at that pool, People have already rebirthed and saved, and and that, that pool is an evidence of. They want to proclaim, as the woman at the well did to everyone else, what God has done for them. So baptism by the water is a profession of faith. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives you faith. There's an inward reality, there is an outward expression, and that's what we'll be doing next week with the water baptisms. No, the evidence that God has blown into your lives is when you can say, you know what? God has changed me. God's changed me. We celebrate events, but Christianity is not a past event. That's why 80% of Americans will check a box in a survey that says, I'm a Christian, because they've had some event in their lives. Yet our country bathes itself in, in immorality of every kind that we see every day because the lives haven't been changed. The apostle warns today, the apostle John says, don't fool yourself. He wants you to not be fooled. And he's going to describe two categories of people from two different families. One family is that which practices rebellion. The other family is that which practices righteousness. And you'll be given the opportunity to identify for yourself which family you belong to. So look with me at 1 John chapter 3 in verse 4. It says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Most English versions accurately reflect the Greek, which employs two words here. Uh, It's translated either practices sins, commits sins, or committeth sins, right? The NIV translates this verse with one word. It simply reads everyone who sins. That's an unfortunate rendering. It's not a literal rendering. The, the Greek conveys more than that. Uh, we, already all, we all know everyone sins, right? God has previ- or John has previously assured us in chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we've deceived ourselves. And then he says, if we confess our sins, he's speaking to Christians there, right, in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive our sins. And then also he said, if we say that we have not sinned, we have made God a liar, Then in chapter 2, he assures the Christian, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in no way can we conclude that John is suggesting now in chapter 3 that somehow Christians are suddenly perfect and sinless. He's already clearly communicated in previous chapters that we're not. So if we were, he and the other apostles wouldn't have to write all these letters constantly reminding Christians to not sin. No, sinless perfection is not what John indicates here. Uh, he's already ruled that out, and he's not contradicting himself here. He's communicating to us something else. So what I'd like you to do, for the sake of this passage, is attempt to completely put out of your mind this idea that John implies any one-time sin, or even a, a once-in-a-while sin, a now-and-then sin, but instead describes someone Who categorically practices sin. Somebody who committeth themselves to sin. You follow what I'm saying? Because this Greek term for practices or commits here carries with it the connotation of a habitual practice. This entire passage is describing an attitude towards sin. In fact, the term lawlessness here in verse 4 it indicates an attitude of rebellion. I'm going to read a couple lines from a commentary concerning this Greek word we translate as lawlessness. Um, But I want you to know, uh, before I read this, this is not an isolated view. Every reputable scholar, commentary that I've read into, shares this same view about this word lawlessness. The quote is this. It says, the term lawlessness conveys more than transgressing God's law. It conveys the ultimate sense of rebellion, i.e. living as if there was no law or ignoring whatever laws exist, unquote. The Apostle John is warning Christians against committing sins in a dismissive and habitual attitude of rebellion. That's what he's warning against. And after studying a uh, multitude of resources, I've come up with my own personal paraphrase for what John is saying here. You can take this or leave this. My own paraphrase for verse 4, if you'll look at it, mine goes like this. Everyone who commits himself to sinning also practices rebellion toward God. And we know habitual sin indicates rebellion. That's what he's saying. Habitual sin indicates rebellion. Why would this attitude of rebellion be so serious that John is being so stern on this. What is the first name that you think of when you think about rebellion against God and sin? Satan, right? This characterizes Satan. He rebelled against God, not just once. Once was enough to get him cast out of heaven, right? But Satan is characterized by habitual repeated rebellion against God. It didn't stop with just once. From the beginning, he's lawless. Now contrast rebellion with what was demonstrated by the Holy Christ. Look at verse 5. John writes, You know that he, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In contrast to that attitude of rebellion, we find obedience. And in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says this, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The Son of God is sinless, and he came to make us sinless, right? It says, he appeared to take away sins. That's why he came. That's the whole reason Mary had a little baby, It's a reason we celebrate Christmas. To make our sins disappear is a reason that Christ appeared. Remember the angel told Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. John the baptizer, when he was down at the Jordan, he looked up, He saw Jesus, and what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Jesus came to endure the cross. He came to be shamed. He came to be beaten and to bear the sin of the world. To take away sins. Whatever you do, don't miss this. Don't get sidetracked into thinking that Jesus appeared for some other reason. That he came to eliminate poverty. That he came to redistribute all the wealth. He came to make us prosperous or to give world peace. Not even to protect the environment. So many churches across America, they've got their advents all mixed up. You know what I mean? First coming versus second coming. They don't recognize what's supposed to happen, happen at each. And they preach another gospel that fails to include the reason why Jesus appeared they offer a a crossless Christ he appeared to heal every aching joint that's what you hear he doesn't want you to have any pain he might have appeared to pay your credit card debt because he wants you to prosper and he might appear to spare every child from dying if so as I've said many times before if that was why he appeared 2,000 years ago he miserably failed But that's not why Jesus appeared. He appeared to wipe away the sin of the world. It'll be the second time when he comes where he'll wipe away every tear, right? Right now, sometimes we have some tears. But the cross, like that, the crossless church, it tries to persuade us that that to look like Jesus demands behaviors. It demands... preserving the environment so to speak uh, to imitate him it, they might tell us that it means to heal every sick person uh, to di- display spirituality they would say would mean your church can raise people from the dead and to look like jesus they'd say well then you need to for- be forgiving and overlook every type of sin that anyone commits and they declare they tell us well this is how you're going to look if you look like jesus That's not what the Apostle John says. John tells us what we're going to look like if we look like Jesus. Turn to verse 6. It says, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You won't hear those verses read very often in churches today. You can skip around them pretty easy, can't you? Well, we just won't read that. But the truth is, to look like Jesus is to die to sin and live a life that is righteous. They won't tell you that. They'll say, no, no, Jesus didn't come to deal with sin and and provide that rebirth by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of living righteously. No, that's not why he came. Uh, They'll laugh. That's, That's preposterous. Jesus would never expect us to turn away from our sin. They might say, you know, he wouldn't demand us to repent, would he? Repent? Why would I waste my time worrying about righteousness? You know, there's so many sick people that need to be healed. There's so many different things we can do for Jesus. Um, why don't we eliminate social injustice? Why doesn't the church focus on stopping the bullying? Besides, if I do those good things, if I do good stuff, then Jesus really isn't going to mind if I live a life of sin, he? as long as I'm doing good. That's the mistake. Certainly there are homeless. Certainly there are those suffering, and the church strives to alleviate that pain. We're not going to eliminate it. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, right? We're always going to endure that. Jesus didn't appear to fix every social problem. Scripture says he appeared to what? To take away sins. That's why Port St. Lucie Bible Church preaches Christ, and we preach him crucified. Why won't churches preach that? We have to recognize the cross demonstrates sacrifice. The cross demonstrates dying to self. It demonstrates death to sin it signifies crucifying our sinful predispositions and that's not a gospel that most people want to hear it's not really that attractive to have to put away sins when you enjoy them so much right sounds like foolishness to them savior who died what kind of savior would die what kind of victory is that if you just die doesn't that just sound silly? Uh, a Savior, he denied himself? Didn't pleasure himself, he denied himself, and he died? Sounds like foolishness. And scripture says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 So the world doesn't want a Savior who suffered and died and sacrificed and lived a perfect, sinless life to be our role model of righteousness. It wants to hear about a Savior who heals their sore finger and doesn't ask them to do anything. They willingly receive a role model who doesn't suffer. They're happy to listen to ten great business ideas in team building from the life of Jesus, right? That's why so many churches offer that to them. And modern history has proven that can pack out a house, can it? For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. It's foolishness. So Jesus appeared to remove sins. Any gospel that we preach, it doesn't include a bloody cross, and Jesus dying to himself, and offering himself to others, and that being our role model, any other gospel is foolishness. Since Jesus came to remove sins, our disposition is to remove sins. That's what we strive to do. So we've got two types of people on the planet. One, as we learn, demonstrates rebellion. The other demonstrates righteousness. One indicates selfishness. The other, sacrifice. One exhibits pride. The other endures the shame of the cross and there's no, no in-between. You're either living in the light of the gospel and of Christ, or you reside in darkness. That's the only option. Which describes you? Who do you belong to? Is a question you have to ask. And in, ca- in case you have trouble determining whether you're in the light or in the darkness, verse 7 pro- provides us some assistance. It reads, "Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, again, to destroy the works of the devil, that is sin. It's actually possible to be be deceived into thinking you're righteous." without practicing righteousness. That's very very possible. In fact, it's very common today to encounter a theology that considers holy living completely optional to the Christian. Completely optional. And, and perhaps even undesirable. Their argument is that, that if Christ already died for you, you really don't need to be troubled with any of that old-fashioned holiness or righteousness, righteousness stuff, right? Don't worry about that Christ already died. You can live in your sin. You can practice your sin. You can be characterized by your sin. Even today, you can even identify yourself proudly with that sin. The banner on the sides of of these types of establishments, quote-unquote churches, says, we're all inclusive, we're tolerant, we love you just as you are, and as you come in, we are not going to ask you to adjust your lifestyle the Jesus that we're going to give you is not going to ask you to do that you can't reconcile that to the Bible not this passage we're in here not any portion of scripture can you reconcile that to the Bible spiritual rebirth again this gift from God being rebirth through the spirit and that influence of the indwelling spirit that you have inside of you as a born-again Christian does not allow you to be unconcerned with habitual sin. To do so, to be unconcerned with habitual sin, is impossible because of the stirring of the Spirit. It ought to bother you, is what we're saying. It ought to more than bother you. It ought to cause change in behavior. If you don't believe me, we're now at verse 9. Get this one. No one who is born of God practices sin because... Christ's seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. That's a tough one, isn't it? Well, before we depart here, I need to point out that there are a lot of false theologies out there that that get a whole lot of mileage out of this isolated verse. Um, This isolated statement, that person cannot sin because he's born of God. And they pull that out and they say, well, this is our theology. We're righteous, we can't sin, we're better than the church across the street. Christians can sin. We learned that last week, right? What John's doing is exhorting people to not sin, to look like Christ. And they they will claim that, that a Christian won't sin, can't sin, but to arrive at that faulty conclusion, you've got to completely tear that statement out of its immediate and extended context. And they all deny experiential reality. That's not what we go by, but... They all deny reality. Consider these things first here. Number one, I don't know anyone who cannot sin. I've never met anyone that cannot sin. Christ was the only one who never sinned. I I don't believe I'm ever going to meet anyone on this earth before Christ returns who cannot sin. Second, in the immediate context of of these verses, when you look at 7, 8, 9, and 10 we see that John repeatedly employs that term, practices. Right? committeth. Remember, we've already learned that that means a sin that is habitual. It's got a dismissive, rebellious attitude that resembles the devil. That's why verse 8 says that those people who dismiss sin and they rebel in their sin are of the devil. It doesn't matter Which denomination you are, what color your choir robes are, what title you have before your name, or what degrees you have hanging on the wall, if you have a dismissive attitude about sin, Scripture says you're of the devil. You can't just dismiss it and say it doesn't matter. And then third, John has already said in the first two chapters that we talked about earlier, we actually can sin. For someone to imply that a Christian cannot sin, uh, it's just denying the greater context of the letter altogether. But to provide a couple reasonable explanations on how the person who is born again has the seed of God abiding in them cannot sin, here are two plausible explanations. First, the most common view that I have found expressed by theologians concerning this statement in verse 9 is this, that the person with the seed of God in them cannot habitually sin because he's born of God since that term practice and committeth appears so many times repeated in this passage it's very reasonable to acknowledge that that John is anticipating that in some reasonable way a reader is going to believe that fits in verse 9 as well in fact it appears earlier in verse 9 right We all know that when a term is repeated over and over again in a short period of scripture, it has a very significant value to the passage. So the the habitual practices of an unbeliever, um, those who do not have the spirit, those, those people who have that habitual practice can't have victory over sin. We all know that this term repeated over and over again is significant, as I said, I think this is most plausible. If you take that view, again, that, that word appears five times in this passage. In effect, verse 9 would be interpreted as follows. No one who is born of God habitually practices sin. They don't practice sin. Because Christ's seed abides in him, and he cannot habitually practice sin because he's born of God. That that practices committeth is so many times in there that John would just expect and anticipate that people would understand from what he's already written in first in the first chapter and second chapter that you can't habitually practice sin. That seed of the Holy Spirit behaves as an internal restraint on us. Right? We can't we can't just continue in the way that we were as an unbeliever. That's that's one explanation the Christian can't habitually practice sin. An alternative one that I suggested last week from Apostle Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7. Let me add this again quickly for those who weren't here. Apostle Paul's testimony in verse 15 of chapter 7 of Romans. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Remember? For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But I do the very thing I do not want to do. That word, do there, he says that I do. Same Greek word. It would read, But if I practice the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, Paul says, but sin which dwells in me. Remember when we discussed that? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willingness present in me, that's the Spirit, But the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Then he wraps up with this. But if I am doing, again, same word, practicing. But if I am practicing the very thing I do not want, Paul says, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Without exhaustive explanation for time's sake, Though that view is not as commonly held, that second, that second view is common among reputable scholars, and it's saying that, that John says a Christian, his spiritual side, as Paul was saying, can't sin. He cannot sin. That portion of him is born again in the Spirit, And the argument is that the regenerated and redeemed portion, the eternal part of you that is spiritual, is in constant friction against the fleshly desires that your body wants to do and your mind wants to do. Consequently, that spirit part of him cannot sin. Another plausible explanation. Which of these two views do you want to take? Christians take either view both are reasonable Don't, both do not contradict what is clearly taught in the entire rest of the Bible so either can be held by a Bible believing Christian if you hold to the view however that a Christian cannot sin at all I want your autograph at the end of service let's complete John's thought in verse 10 by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness again is not of God. So the question is very simple. John is asking, whose child are you? Are you in rebellion? Does that characterize you? Do you simply dismiss sins? Are you characterized by them? Do you even boast in them? Do you enjoy reveling in them? If so, Scripture says you are a child of the devil. Or, do you grieve in sin? Do you hate sin, as Paul said? Do you remorse over sin, even when you do it? Is righteousness the desire of your heart? Do you want to please Christ? Do you want to live for God? Do you want to grow in biblical faith? And is holy living and righteousness the center of your life? Is that what you want to do with your life? If so... That is evidence that God's seed abides in you. And scripture indicates you are a child of God. Is there evidence of a storm? Has the Holy Spirit blown through your life? Is there wreckage of your old life behind that gives clear evidence that there is a change? And now are you living in a new way? Are you a new creature Have you flattened out those appetites of the sinful flesh? Everyone is in process. Everyone is working through this. No one is perfect. But are you trying to overcome? Have you been born again? If not, you need to receive Christ. Receive His Spirit. Ask God to come into your life. Ask His Spirit to regenerate you, to change you. God is the one in control here. So I'm going to pray. This has been on your heart. It probably indicates God has already been convicting you. Scripture tells us that conviction of sins is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's probably already been working in your life, and you will have to yield to him. Let's pray. Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. You are holy, Lord God, and we know to look like you. Is to be holy. Lord, we're, we're so grateful that you have accomplished this at the cross. That, Lord, you have declared us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and that we don't have to be perfect in order to be redeemed. If it were, Lord, we'd all be in a world of trouble. But, Lord God, we pray that your spirit is moving as it did in the Welsh revival that Gerald talked about earlier. Lord, that it is going through convicting people of sin and regenerating hearts, Lord God. That you're penetrating people. And Lord, that if there's anyone today that's been pondering this, what their life should be, should they be turning toward God and living for Christ, Lord, we pray that you would convict them. Lord, that you would send your spirit to seal them and that you would redeem them and make them a possession of your very own. Lord, if there's anyone here who's ready for that decision. We pray that you make it today. Lord, possibly even they would want to be baptized next Sunday to profess what you've already done in their life. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to come together to encourage one another, Lord. We're blessed. We thank you for it. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.